0: Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. We're continuing in our series uh, called "Why Church." We began this last weekend, um, and so I, I, what I want to do is get us caught up a little bit. Maybe you weren't here last weekend. Um, we know who you, who you are. I'm just kidding. We don't. Uh, we, we don't do that here. Um, but uh, I, I want to get us caught up on this because I do think it's, it's important that we that you understand the spirit of why we're doing this. And I made some sort of set some ground rules for this series. First one is this no guilt this is not about guilting anyone into any kind of behavior. Guilt is not a great uh, motivator for sustained life change. It, it might change behavior. It might modify behavior for short periods of time. Uh, but guilt doesn't get the job done. We want our hearts to and our minds to understand and to, to lean into uh, why God would, would think it'd be good to gather as the church. So no guilt, no illusions. We, we know that the church is not perfect. The big church is imperfect. We know this church is not perfect. I, I know my imperfections. You know your imperfections and uh, and even as we say that no illusions that, that we know we're imperfect we're not saying that so that we can sweep under the rug uh, the mistakes that we make we'll own them we need to own them and and to live authentically yet at the same time we don't want to have false expectations set on one another as we move through this series so no guilt no illusions but no holding back we need to let God's word speak very clearly to us about, about why, why would God think it's a good reason, why, why is, what are some good reasons for us to gather, why is it important, why is it on his heart, and why does it need to be on our hearts. So uh, we're going to speak the truth of love on this topic and make sure that we're, 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 there's some clarity on this particular issue. Uh, a couple things I want you to know as we pick up today, uh, last week we, we just started answering this question, why church? The first uh, answer we got is, is that Christianity can only be lived out in community, that this is not a privatized, I mean, Christianity can, can, is lived out best in community, it's not an intellectual faith, it's, it's not meant to be lived out in isolation. Uh, Paul Ternier wrote that there's two things in life you cannot do alone, the first is marriage, the second is Church. Uh, it's intended to be to be to be lived out in relationship, um, and then we define church. I mean, give you a different de- definition, different picture from a book written by Philip Yancey called "Church: Why Bother?" Yancey describes the church in an unorthodox way. He says the church is God's neighborhood bar, a hangout like the television show Cheers. Who has no idea what the television show Cheers is? <laughs> okay, most, okay, okay, some okay. It's a show. Anyhow, uh, a telephone show cheers for people who know all about your lousy boss, your mother with heart trouble back in North Carolina, and the teenager who won't do what you tell him. A place where you can unwind, spill your life story, and get a sympathetic look, not a self-righteous leer. It's, it's this picture of this, this, this community and so this is this is how Christianity is lived out and then we made this other uh, kind of made this other observation that your experience of God you can't experience God to the degree that he intends without being built into a body of believers and in order to understand why on that one I encourage you to listen to the podcast or go to our live stream page um, and you get caught up in the series that we started last weekend. A lot of years ago, when I was, Trina and I were living in Hood River, I was not a pastor, I was working for a company, I was an elder in the church, and we were having a service It was a little bit different than most services, uh, we, you know, we sang together, we prayed together, but instead of a talk, instead of a sermon, uh, we had open mics up front, and we invited people to come and to share what God was doing in their life. We told them this, this isn't the time to kind of pull out that sermon they had their back pocket, this thing they've been just longing to tell the church, uh, but more of how has God been at work in your life? And it, it was it beautiful services and, and one of those services was going and, and it was the last service of, of the day and it was running a little bit late and, and I was wrapping things up. I stood up, the church was standing up to, to to receive the benediction and before I could speak a word of blessing, a young man hopped out into the center aisle of of the church service before I was closing it and and shouted he said hey hey and you know all heads turned wondering what was going on and and it's kind of this this silent moment he says "Hey, hey how how do I how can I be part of this and, um, people were looking at each other and I was looking at him and he must have seen the, the quizzical look on my face because I wasn't prepared for this. And so he said again, Hey, seriously, how, how do I get in on this? And so I said, Hey, uh, what's your name? I said, Andy, Andy, come on down here. Andy comes on down and he begins to share a story. And it's a story of pain, a story of loss a story of hitting some dead ends, a story of just, just frustration. As he sat in that service and he was, he was watching all this, something in his, his heart, his spirit began to rise. And he wanted to be part of this. And, and, and then eventually his, his wife, Carolyn, Carolyn was in church as well, but she was hiding under the back pew in the back. <laughs> And um, it was completely impromptu. And, and Carolyn and Andy are up front. And they give their life to Christ right there on that, on that Sunday afternoon in church. Um, by the way, they're still plugged in that church, serving in that church. Got three kids. Uh, they're following after Christ. And um, Andy saw something. Here, here's what he saw. When the church gets it right, it's a beautiful, magnetic, attractive thing that people long to be a part of. Now, church doesn't always get it right. Oftentimes what happens when the church doesn't get it right, people are backing away from the church. But when the church does get it right, people are asking, hey, how do I I experience this? How do I get in on, on this? And as we were watching all this happen that Sunday afternoon, something in our souls was awakened as well. There's this amazing thing that takes place when you gathers the body, that when you watch God at work, you see God at work. Your own soul is reoriented. Your own soul is recalibrated in the ways of Christ. In fact, i just put it up on the screen. Why church? Here's why. I believe in the church because gathering as the church recalibrates the soul. There's something about gathering, about having this, this rhythm of gathering together that, that just, if we get a little bit off track, it sort of brings us, brings us back. Now, in the Gospels... The writers of the Gospels oftentimes made some, some remarks about some, some common practices of Jesus. Uh, you, you, you may be familiar with them. Uh, he had this common practice of, of praying for a meal, uh, praying for a, a, a dinner meal or a lunch meal or a breakfast in such a way that people recognized the way he prayed. The reason I say that is because after his resurrection, Jesus is walking with these two guys, these two folks on the road to Emmaus, and he gets invited to their house, They don't know who he is until he prays and and thanks the Father for this bread that's been provided. There was something about the way he prayed that was recognizable for them, that their eyes were opened. This is Jesus. We also know from, from Luke's account of Jesus' life that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. This was a frequent pattern of his That he had this spiritual rhythm. He had these spiritual practices that he has played out over time. It was noticed by his best friends. And they talked about it. In fact, on the prayer topic, they even asked him about it Tell us how you pray. Um, and, And so Jesus answered that question. But there's another practice that Jesus had that um, sometimes we miss. Luke, again, captures it in chapter 4, verse 16, put up here on the screen. It says, when he came to Nazareth, when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went as usual, some of your translations will say, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus had this practice of going to synagogue and let's just make the observation here, going to synagogue for him wasn't always a pleasant experience because it was at the synagogue that he experienced a lot of conflict where the religious leaders pushed back on the things that he was teaching. In fact, after some synagogue services, the Pharisees had had enough and they actually plotted Jesus' death. That's a bad weekend at church, okay? But he had this pattern Of going to synagogue. Now, the church is birthed, and the church gets going, and I I think that the early church noticing this desire within Jesus to gather with worshipers of Jehovah, it spills over into the life of the early church. And I wanna read to you a passage from Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 10, Tevin is not a number. Uh, Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Listen to these words. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good work. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near couple observations one is in the early church there are it, it it appears to be that there were people who didn't value gathering as the church so much so that the writer of hebrews we don't know if it's a he or a she we don't know who wrote this book um but but there were some in the early church who didn't value the gathering of of, of believers so if you're watching on live stream or you're you're here today and it, this is this is a a pattern for you that's hard, it's really hard for you to lean into for a variety of reasons. Can I just tell you you're you're in good company? That struggle has been going ever since the church was was birthed by Christ. Uh, the, so it's it's been a struggle for a long time. The second thing I would say is simply this that what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here is that he's saying to those who are who are neglecting gathering as some people are, he says don't do that because we want to encourage one another because the return of Christ is coming near. Now what is he getting at? There's something about gathering as the church, this mysterious discipline of gathering as a church that produces this mysterious result in actually readying us for the return of Christ. I think what it is is that there's something that happens in our spirit. There's something that happens in our soul when we gather together as the body that recalibrates us in the way of Christ. It reorients us in, in following after Jesus. It's, sort of, it's a reset button for us every, each and every week to, to get us going and point, help pointing us in the way of Christ. And I've experienced this on my own. Just last night, 6.30 service, we're worshiping. And uh, uh, an an older gentleman is up here by the cross and he is weeping as he's kneeling up here. And a friend of his comes and kneeling with him as well. And there's a, a moment of ministry. I don't know what was going on. I just know that someone was having an encounter with God and a friend was there with them. And my soul was enlarged. My soul was stirred as I watched God at work. We've seen this in in, in our services where where some will come to the cross and they'll write their name on a white ribbon and they'll pound that white ribbon in the cross and our souls are recalibrated. Our souls are enlarged as we're watching God at work. When we celebrate communion together, one of my favorite ways of celebrating communion is is when the stewards are up here and they have a cup and they have a basket with some bread in it. And I know that for some of you, that's not your favorite way because I get your letters. And... (laughs) But, but here, here's, here's, here's why. It's not the only way we do it, but here's why I love it because I'm, I'm usually sitting in the front row and, and it's a little awkward for me to turn around and stare at everybody. But in that moment, I get to walk to the back of the line and I get to watch you remember Jesus and the sacrifice that he has offered for us. And, and I get to watch and, and it's, it's, it, my soul is enlarged. Even when there's a floater left in the cup, my soul is still enlarged. My, my soul is enlarged. My soul is recalibrated when I see baptisms. We watch people, I mean, a little over a year, ago, a year ago, a guy named Dave was being baptized. I had the privilege of baptizing Dave. Dave spent most of his life in prison. He, he murdered somebody, but he found Christ. And, and I had a, a, the privilege of baptizing him. And I, I told Trina we were driving home. and That's a first for me. My spirit was stirred. And Dave has since gone on to glory. He's with Jesus. And I... I've listened to kids who are asked the question, you know, what, what would you do if you saw Jesus for the very first time face-to-face and they have these great childlike responses and my soul is recalibrated and my soul is strengthened and the spirit is stirred. I, George was in the tank. George, I think in his 80s, a real estate developer in town and George, um, he's he found Christ in a late, later part of his life and he's being baptized and he's asked the question, Is Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior? And is it your desire to follow Him all the days of your life? And George bellows out, Well, I sure hope so. (laughs) And we all laughed. And we all celebrated with Him, and our souls were recalibrated. Friends, when the church gathers, and I believe when the church gets it right, it's a beautiful experience. It's magnetic, it's attractive. It causes people like my friend Andy to, to interrupt the service and go, hey, 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 how do, I get up? how do I get in on this? And those of us who have been able to get on this, watch God at work as the church gathers to worship and our souls are recalibrated and stirred. It's a blessing to us. So why church? Because it's lived out in community and our experience with God is that much deeper when it happens in community and, and, and it recalibrates our souls and our spirits as we follow after Christ. So that's why the writer of Hebrews, I think seeing the pattern in Jesus' life and knowing the return of Christ is near is calling people to stay connected because there's a mysterious work of the Spirit in our hearts when that happens. Here's a second way I'd answer that question today. Why church? It, it, it's simply this. I believe in the church because I think gathering as a church puts me in contact with people I wouldn't normally associate with. Gathering as a church actually puts me in contact with people I wouldn't normally associate with. Now, if you've got your Bibles, go to John uh, chapter 21. because I, I want to read this passage, but before I read it, let me just uh, give a little background here because There is a parallel story to John 21 that takes place in the life of Jesus um, early on, much earlier on. Jesus is teaching at the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells a story. And um, he's done teaching, and there's some fishermen. They fished all night, haven't caught a thing. And Jesus says, Hey, let's go fishing. And they kind of uh, push back a little bit, but because it's Jesus, they say, okay. They get out there fishing. Jesus tells them, cast their net in the deep and uh, put it on this side of the boat and, and they do that and they have the best day of business ever. Catch a ton of fish. And uh, if you remember Peter's response on that day, when that happens, he, he comes to the conclusion of who Christ is and there's this, this, this holiness gap in his perception um, that causes him to say to Jesus, you need to get away from me because I, I'm a sinner. Depart from me, Lord, for I am I'm a sinful man. Well, that story happens again, another account in in John chapter 21, yet Peter's response is a little bit different. And and actually, theologians and biblical scholars have said John 21 actually was put there to give us a picture of the church. But let me let me read the story. Uh, John 21, verse 1. It says, Later, Jesus appeared again. Now, this is after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? Nope, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now, first story Best day of business ever. Luke tells this account early on in his gospel and uh, they haul in the fish, throwing the net on the right-hand side. It seems like all the circumstances are pretty close to being the same. And yet in that response, Peter's, Peter's reaction is, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Yet here we have this story and what Peter does is he actually, he doesn't say, get away from me, Lord. He actually jumps in the water and swims to Jesus, which tells you something about his own friendship with Jesus and how Jesus accepts people who have made an absolute mess of their life. This is the same Peter who's denied Christ three times. This is the same Peter who's, a, who's an absolute spiritual failure. Yet he discovers it's Jesus on the shore and he's jumping in. There's something about his response that tells you about the character of Jesus. But what I wanna focus in on is, is actually who's in the boat. Because this is, this, is, this is fascinating. In the boat, we've got some unnamed disciples. And we've got, uh, we've got Thomas, we've got Nathaniel, we've got Peter, and we've got John. And they're in the boat. And, and let's just talk about each of those characters. Because Nathaniel, Nathaniel's from Cana. And Nathaniel, if you remember his story, uh, the friends of, of one another are telling each other that they've met this guy. They think he might be the Messiah. And in John chapter 1, Philip, who's one of Nathanael's friends, he goes and he tells Nathanael that they think they found the Messiah, the person that Moses wrote about. And uh, so Nathanael is coming with Philip and he's going to meet Jesus. And John 1 says this As they approached Jesus, uh, as they approached Jesus, said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I've seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Nathanael is a bit skeptical what, what good could come from, come from Nazareth? But when he meets Jesus, Jesus speaks a word of knowledge about Nathaniel. A word of knowledge is a spiritual gift. Remember now, Jesus has set aside his divine prerogatives. Philippians chapter two tells us that. And he's living this, the Holy Spirit empowered life. And he gets a word of knowledge. He, he, he's, he knows that Philip, was under a fig tree. A word of knowledge is a a, a piece of information, some knowledge that you get that you couldn't possibly have gotten on your own. You couldn't have deduced this. You couldn't have figured it out. The Spirit of God has given this to you, and and Jesus gets a word of knowledge about, uh, about the moment when Philip is gonna tell Nathaniel that he needs to come with him. I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you parked in the the Target parking lot. I saw you in your living room and you were watching Channel 6 and you were watching that show. We'll talk about that later. But I saw you. And this so captures Nathaniel's attention that he actually comes to the conclusion in John chapter 1, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is before Peter's confession of Christ, which tells you a little bit about Nathaniel. Nathaniel is one of those easy believism kind of guys. He's an early adopter. You might even call him superstitious. He's probably, if he were alive today, he could be a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> he hears something, just give him a little bit of information and he's in. He's, he, he, you are the Christ. You're the son of God, king of Israel. Now, contrast Nathaniel to a guy named Thomas Thomas is in that boat remember Thomas his friends have all seen Jesus he wasn't there and he doesn't believe it that Jesus has risen from the dead and his response to his best friends is unless I touch the nail prints in his hand and I touch the wound in his side I'm not I'm not buying this And if you know the story, Jesus, in fact, does show up again and extends his hands to Thomas and lets him touch the nail prints and touch his wound in his side. And Thomas then believes. If Nathaniel is superstitious, you could call Thomas substitious. He's like, no, 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 I'm a late adopter. I'm I'm not in on this one until unless I see it, unless I touch it, then, then maybe I'm in. Can you imagine the potential for conflict between those two personalities? You got this one guy, oh man, this is it. I, know, I watched the YouTube video, I know this is happening. And you got this other guy, come on, are you serious? And then think about Peter and John. John, he must be the analyzer, he must be the detail guy because he's the one in the boat who's connecting the dots for everyone else. See, I remember this. There was a time when, when Jesus was in the boat with us and he said, Cast your net on the right hand side. And we had that best day of business, and here we are again. And this guy says, Cast the net on the right hand side. This must be Jesus. John is the detail guy, he's the analyzer, he's sort of the, the accounting kind of mind. Um, and, and, and yet, he's, one of his friends is Peter. Peter rarely connects the dots. He's got this impetuous personality. He's very aggressive. He's very impulsive. And and after John connects the dots, it's Peter who's diving into the water and swimming to the shore and leaving all the work for everyone else to bring the boat in. These, These four guys are completely different. And there's other guys in the boat. We don't have their names. Maybe, maybe one of them is Simon the Zealot if Simon the Zealot is in the boat, he probably has a hat on that says, make Israel great again, if you think about his political viewpoint. <laughs> and maybe, maybe Matthew's in the boat and he's got a T-shirt on that says, you know, feel the burn or forward. And, and these, these, are two, these are two people who have completely different political viewpoints. But all those guys are in the boat. And they're so different from one another. Look, here's the deal. In our culture today, there are people who are rallying around ideology, around ideas. And they want to gather around people who, uh, who have the same ideas. They want to gather on ideas and, and shared ideas that, 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 that sound the same. And, and so they call they call you to that. There's people who, who gather around politics and they want people to gather around who, who vote the same as, as they do. There are people in our world who, who gather around hobbies. They want to be with people who play like they do. There are people in our world that gather around causes because they're really invested in this particular cause and, and the other people gather around that cause. Cause as well but here's the unique thing about us we do not gather around something we gather around someone and when you gather around someone and you look around the room you find yourself in the boat with people who are nothing like you except they're following after Jesus and I think that's a gift I believe that is a gift to us to be around people who love Jesus but have different ethnicity, to be around people who have different levels of education, to be around people who have different levels of income, to be around people who love to do different things. And our lives are enriched because, because Jesus is calling people from all tribes, all nations, all languages, to come follow him and I I, there's nothing like a church when the church gets it right I'm not saying you've heard me the church doesn't always get it right but when the church gets it right there are people like Andy who will stand up and say hey how do I get in on this because I'm not seeing this anywhere else else. How, how, how do I be a part of this And let me just wrap up by just a, a couple of practical ways for us to apply this. The first one is this I've already sort of hinted at this. Have we in any way adopted this reductionistic view of the church that the, the, the church should be people that gather around anything other than the person of Jesus? Have we been slowly seduced to embrace this idea? This is how Christians should think about this. This is how Christians should vote about this. These are the causes, the causes that we should be involved in versus gathering around the person of Jesus Christ who will give us plenty of direction, who will speak to us about how we are to live our lives and how we are to align our lives with him. Have we in, in any way Embrace this reductionistic, this, this pressure to sort ourselves into these the different boxes versus simply being followers of Jesus. And looking around the room and going, man, there's some people around me who have some different thoughts of me. Actually, my, my life could be the richer for it. I'm not, I'm not talking about you know, relative truth. and I'm, I'm talking about people who are very different, who come under the word of God and who are following the word of God. Have we been seduced into this reductionistic view of being a Christ follower and what that means? Friends, we do not gather on something. We gather on someone. And our lives are the better for it. Second thing I would say is this. I want you to evaluate your patterns, your rhythms, your spiritual practices when it comes to gathering as a church. Do some your own personal reflection and remember... No guilt. Could someone write about you? And John, as usual, went to the synagogue. What's your practice? What's your rhythm? Because it's in community that actually we live out our faith. It's it's where we have the experiences that God intended for us to experience Him and It's where our souls are recalibrated. And it's where we rub shoulders with people who may or may not be like us. But actually this points us in the way of Christ. I think those are two questions where they've given some time to. In AD 140, a creed was written. It was called the Apostles' Creed. Some of you know about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Years ago, we we, we read the Apostles' Creed in church and um, someone came out to be very concerned because one of the lines in the creed says, I believe in the holy Catholic church. What are, you, are we becoming Catholic? And, um, and there was a lot of... I said, no, 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 no. When this creed was written in AD 140, the Catholic Church didn't exist. What is meant by that word is the universal church, the big C church. And the Apostles' Creed is actually one of the earliest creeds that affirms a belief in a Trinitarian God, as well as a belief in many other things. And in the early church, before someone was baptized... They would recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son, Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And they would get to the point where they would say, And I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the church. It was a statement of saying, I I believe in you. And I do. Believe in us. And I want to invite as we as we wrap up our time this morning would you stand with me and I want to give you the opportunity we're going to recite this creed and we're going to sing this creed and invite you to read with me and make a statement of belief in, in, in God. Now, when we get to that line about believing in the church maybe for some of you that's just I don't know if I can go there. It's okay if that, you can't go there today. My hope is that the Spirit of God will will lead you there. He will heal those wounds, and you'll be able to say, I believe in us. So I'll get us started. Let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. "...suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers@salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at Livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.